right, welcome to a March 1st episode of The National Pulse. I'm Raheem Kassam, editor-in-chief of thenationalpulse.com. It is the year of our Lord, 2021, a gloomy, rainy Monday here on Capitol Hill. Now, a lot of people are heading back after CPAC. We'll get into the president's speech at CPAC a little bit later on in the show. It's our long show today. So get settled in. Get the pot of tea or the pot of coffee on. Get your petit madeleines on the side table. And let's have a whale of a time together. We've got Thomas Farnan joining us from the outset, talking about his incredible new article. The increasingly secret history of the racist Democrats and how senile Boomer Biden heralds the end. And then, you and I, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to go on a journey together. We are going to go on a journey along a Gen Psaki press event. But a couple of things have changed since those bumbling early days. And I'm going to walk you through it in real time. In fact, in double time at some parts of that press conference. But I want you to hear this for yourselves. I want you to understand what's going on. I want you to hear the tips and tricks of the trade from somebody like me who used to work in professional political communications. I suppose you might argue that I still do. I would argue I do the news. Nevertheless, that uh, that senior advisor, chief of staff role that I once served has not been beaten out of me, nor have I forgotten it, and never will. And I'm going to bring you inside the mind and the operations of Jen Psaki up there on the podium and tell you what's really going on. But first, we're going to bring in Thomas Farnley as an excellent new article up. I implore you all, don't just read this. It's long. You may need to print it, all right? Seriously. I, I always find that I, I do better with long reads by either printing them and then I've got my highlighter and my pen or I send them straight to my little paper tablet thing. I'm not going to do advertising for these companies until they uh, until they start coughing up, by the way. <laughs> so I'm not going to even tell you. No, it's called the Remarkable 2, my little paper tablet thing. It's, it is remarkable. It's really great and I love it. But uh, I don't think it's particularly uh, particularly right-leaning company. So be advised over that. But you may need to print it. You may need to send it to your device. You may need to send it to your Kindle or whatever you have, right? Your, your ebook reader. Um, because I, I think a lot of people aren't used to reading 3,000 words anymore. But listen, this one is so well written, you will get through it very quickly. You will learn so very much. Goodness knows in the editing process that I did. And um, yeah, I think I think it's it's just so worth worth reading. Thomas Farner just does such an excellent job at uh, at putting these these lies just these lies that keep getting told by the left, putting them in perspective for us, telling us all of the critical things we need to know. And I think he and I make a good team of presenting the article nicely, the right picture choices, the right headlines, the right breaks in the, in the story, connecting things together. Um, he's a real talent, and I really, I'm really grateful for his work. Tom, you have written the 
the piece of all pieces as far as I'm concerned, not just because of what it contains, uh, but actually because of how well it's written and how much it holds the audience in to the, the story, the narrative that you're weaving. And, and really, it's a narrative that we fail to hear uh, uh, much anymore, which is the narrative of truth, the narrative of history, the narrative of events as they took place over the last couple of centuries of American history uh, and, the, and, the, and the civil rights uh, movement and, and, of course, before that, the, attempt, the repeated attempts of subjugation, uh, especially of a specific ethnic class of Americans, uh, by one particular part of the political spectrum. So, Tom, let's start there. Uh, I'd like to understand from you, uh, when we talk about your article which is entitled The Increasingly Secret History of the Racist Democrats and How Senile Boomer Biden Heralds the End. I'd like to understand, and I'm sure the audience would too, why you even undertook this. It seems like a strange sort of tangent from the Russia lie. Well, I think the biggest lie that the left tells is that Trump supporters are white supremacists. And I ask, what's the question, uh, evidence of that? And when you look at it, you see that the um, people pointing the fingers, the people calling me and you, Raheem, white supremacists, are actually historically more connected to the institutions that were racist. Um, so that's what I try to say. Mm. You know, I look at your picture here, Raheem, I wonder, you know, if you would have even been permitted to play Major League Baseball in 1945. Mm. You know, they, they probably would have prohibited you. Uh, and for, you know, the, the media and for Hollywood, and for the elites to turn to you and say, you're the racist, Raheem, when history says that they were the racist, that they attempted to perpetuate a racist regime in America, and that they were only beaten back by alternative media, by um, African-American writers and thinkers uh, who started their own newspapers and wrote beautiful essays, persuasive essays. Uh, they weren't permitted on the you know, main platforms of their day, you know, in the legacy media, but they wrote things and people read it and people were persuaded. When the Supreme Court decided Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, um, ending, you know, the, the idea of separate but equal, the regime of apartheid in America, you know, as we saw this last week, Supreme Court justices don't jump in and do something generally unless the public sentiment is there for them to do that. Mm. And the creators of the public sentiment were the black you know, writers and thinkers um, operating out of places like you know, the Pittsburgh Courier here. I, I, I identified Robert L. Van uh, in my article that were uh, writing those things and persuading people. So um, I, I think the thing, that made me write it is I'm offended by being called uh, a racist or a white supremacist. And I see the history and I say they're more uh, connected to it. Tom, you raise two fascinating points there because it's not often that you, you actually get somebody uh, on the political right uh, to accept the charge of institutional racism within the United States. Most of the time what we hear uh, in response to the charge of institutional raci racism, the charge, by the way, that is now uh, leveled at the right by the Black Lives Matter and, and, and the left-wing crowd, 
But the, ch- the the answer often is there's no institutional racism in America, or 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 we are not the people that that, or we don't try and perpetuate institutional racism, and we we try to fix that uh, problem if there is one in, in 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 any one of these things, police, you know, you name it. But actually, what you're talking about is a far deeper seated historical, and as you say, kind of very deeply institutional racism that has has pervaded in the United States. So, firstly, just address that. It's it's different from what we usually hear. Yeah, I I think one of the things I say in the article is that the great institutions in our country, the academic, academia, uh, the media, Hollywood, never repented uh, for their institutional racism. They instead directed the ire to the working class. And the working class now, when, when, when these groups talk about institutional racism, they're talking about what they consider to be racism that exists in the hearts of common people out there that has to be corrected by government programs. And that's not what it was historically. It was the main universities, Hollywood, and the media perpetuating racial stereotypes, drafting laws that enforced apartheid, uh, Jim Crow laws that were demeaning and humiliating and meant to mock. And, you know, when, when the black writers and thinkers eventually uh, win the argument in, in the mid-1950s, you know, instead of confessing and, you know, making a firm purpose of amendment, as we do in the Catholic faith, they just turned and pointed the finger and, and they made it by, I think I call it a, a card trick, uh, they directed the focus to working class Americans who had nothing to do with that. Mm. They didn't write the laws. They weren't in charge of the universities. They weren't in charge of the media. I guess this Thomas Farnan contributor over at the National Pulse, attorney and an and all round great guy. He's the author of The Russia Lie, which you can get at therussialie.com. Uh, I, uh, I I sincerely recommend it to you. Um, he's written a series of, of 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 pieces, long pieces, articles, analyses, and they all hinge around the the, the subject of of lies uh, or the, the lie that's being told to the American public, uh, or is the most the most dominant at any one time. I, I would, I think I uh, Tom would agree with me uh, by saying there are lots of lies told to the American public at all points. Uh, it just so happens that every uh, every so often one will rear its head larger loom its head larger and and i think this is this is one of them that's especially interesting and later on in the show if people keep listening over the course of this show i'm going to go to jen saki's um press conference from today because you actually have a reporter in the room who doesn't sound like a reporter at all i mean most of them aren't really reporters in, in in how we know you know, journalism historically. But this one is especially galling and kept bringing up the subject, Tom, of white supremacy. What is Biden doing about white supremacy? Is Biden interested in white supremacy abroad? Uh, does he does he think about January the 6th before he goes to bed every night? You know, just really trying to drive this wedge over and over again. And Tom, another thing that stuck out to me from your, from your f- sort of opening gambit on this was talking about these black writers at, uh, at the Pittsburgh paper and the Boston paper, uh, really, when when thinking about that, alongside what I heard earlier today from the press briefing room, it struck me that those were the people, those are the types of papers and certainly the types of columnists who would have been uh, maligned as 
uh, fake news and and you know too radical, too extreme, too loony. Don't buy them. They shouldn't be sold in shops. Those papers shouldn't even be available on the street corners. Talk to us a little bit about that because it, 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 I can tell from your piece that that you're, you're very you're very uh, interested in that fact. Yeah, the same elite uh, that is in control now uh, that is marginalizing you know any narrative that doesn't agree with theirs. Uh, was marginalizing these narratives that came out of these black newspapers. Uh, you know, the Pittsburgh Courier uh, was one of them. Um, you know, the Boston Guardian, there, there were many of them. And if you go back and you read these essays, they're so well-crafted and so persuasive. Um, those that have, you know, an affinity for the civil rights movement, remember Martin Luther King and the way he could weave words and, and his eloquence and the way he could persuade. But Martin, Martin Luther King, you know, had spent many, many years reading these guys. And I think if he was here, he would say, this is where these ideas came from. This is where that eloquence came from. Um, so, yes, it was an alternative media, a different viewpoint. They did everything they could to marginalize them, to limit their distribution. They weren't in the main newspapers, but the word got out and the word persuaded people. And that's what caused uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education, not the personal courage of any of those justices uh, that hearts and minds had changed by 1954. Why do you find it necessary to mention these these people, these papers? Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, I thought it was all Nancy Pelosi and white liberals who were responsible for, for the, the victories of the the civil rights movement. Uh, yeah, she wore the kente cloth up on Capitol Hill. I thought it was. I thought it was rich white elites who who gave uh, uh, black people their freedoms. And that's the amazing thing. I think that's what I call the card trick. You know, once hearts and minds had been changed, once so much had been accomplished in the civil rights movement by the early 1960s, it was only then that government became involved. And really the Democratic Party that had been institutionally connected to everything that was racist, uh, the Civil War, segregation, Plessy versus Ferguson, Woodrow Wilson's presidency where he segregates uh, the federal government and he has the first White House screening uh, in the White House, the pro Ku Klux Klan movie, The Birth of a Nation. Mm. Uh, and he says, it's like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it's so terribly true. These were the Democrats up until they lost. And once they lost, uh, President Lyndon Johnson said, you know, let's let's do something about this. Let's take political advantage of this. And there's a wonderful quote in my piece from Doran Cur Doris Kearns Goodwin's biography uh, of Lyndon Baines Johnson, where as a senator, he said, let's create some legislation so we can get out in front of this. Mm. And then there is, uh, you know, another quote from uh, Lyndon Johnson that some people dispute, but it's, it's, it's quite credibly uh, related. And I, I think he did say it. And he, he identified, we're going to have, uh, you know, the most pejorative word for African-Americans, we're going to have them voting for us for the next 200 years if we pull this off. And you have the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And the Civil Rights Act of 1965 was passed mostly by Republicans. But some Republicans did object to it, and re some Republicans objected to it because it created this massive federal bureaucracy 
that was going to regulate, you know, race relations. And the Republicans said, you know, do we need this? Now, I'm critical of those Republicans. I think it, it would have been politically smart uh, to, to, you know, carry the ball over the end zone here and to uh, support that legislation as well and to find ways to craft the legislation so some of the absurd things that we're seeing with it, you know, wouldn't happen. Uh, but only a minority of Republicans uh, objected to it. Um, Lyndon Baines Johnson championed it. The Civil Rights Act of 1965 was passed. But really, most of the advances in the civil rights movement had happened before that. That, that you know, did some of the cleanup. It's 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 fascinating stuff. You've introduced me to lots of things that I I didn't know about. I think a lot of people my age, certainly people younger, don't know about. It's it's a history, Thomas. That when I saw the article in its fullest, I I, I thought I have to reflect the fact that this history is increasingly hard to find on the internet, and so that's in the title. It's also a play on the uh, a little play on the Time magazine. Uh, headline about the secret history of the election but the increasingly secret history of the racist democrats this we're told constantly uh, is not the history of the united states of america it's not the history of the democratic party Uh, what actually happened was there was a, a very clever flip that the republicans did in order to try to capture the racist vote in the south uh, and it wasn't anything to do with the Democrats, and in fact, the Democrats are are, are the good guys uh, in this in this whole tale that's taken place. Except, except Tom, and and I, I think you'll agree with me here. You look at all the strategies, all of the claims made, all of the historical bases for how uh, black people were treated by Democrats. Those are those are same arguments are still used today. Uh, to to subjugate black people beneath the de- as a, as a subsidiary, right? Black Lives Matter is a subsidiary of the Democratic Party of America. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. I think I've lost my connection with you, Tom. So bear with me one second. Something, of course, is a very very long here. I'm going to try and reset that right here. Tom, do we have you? Do you have me? I got you. All right, let's let's pick back up right from there. Uh, can you um, can you enlighten us a little bit on that? Yeah, one of the things that bothered me about the election of 2020 is, you know, I'm sitting here in the middle of Pittsburgh, and you go out to the counties to the west of me, Butler and Beaver County, and they are very much working class towns that have had their manufacturing base pretty much bolted, unbolted, and sent to China. And you have uh, blacks and whites living together in those towns uh, that are on the same teams. They marry one another. And Trump did very well in those places where the election was over economic issues. Um, and, and I am bothered that uh, if anything was done, you know, in, in you know, inner cities uh, to harvest ballots, uh, either against the will of people or uh you know, if, if they were apathetic and, and they were sort of encouraged, uh, that that suppresses the votes of those African-Americans in Butler and Beaver County. And that's exactly, you know, what the Democrats were doing around the time of slavery with the three-fifths compromise. Uh, when they were harvesting three out of five slave votes, they didn't let them vote. They just, you know, used their personages to say, we get additional electoral might here. Um, and uh, they would then use that to legislate, you know, uh, in favor of slavery. So 
it, it bothers me. It's, it's very unfair. The narrative uh, creates, you know, great unfairness. Uh, really, the, the paradigm has shifted. Uh, I think there is still, you know, an aristocracy that is looking down its nose at, you know, the, the little people uh, that are doing the work, mm. but it's not based on race. It's, it's based on, you know, the, the Hillary Clintons of the world scoffing at the deplorables, the working people. And uh, that's how I see the world. So when it's when it's done to them, let's say let's say any of these policies that that affect the working classes that you speak about in your article, when it's when it's subju- subjected upon the elites or the would be elites, very very high off middle classes, certainly the the oligarchy. And indeed, the wannabe oligarchy, because there are some who kind of circle around attempting to be part of that whole scene, but kind of would be shunned in a heartbeat um, by, as you say, that, you know, you give the example of Hillary Clinton, very very snobby about who they allow in their circles. But when something happens in their neighborhoods or something like that, it's, it's, it's you know, if they don't want it, it's nimbyism, right? It's not in my backyard. It's conservationism, you know, whatever whatever you call it, they come up with some excuse. They also all then come up with excuses to only make these policies affect working class people in working class areas, Tom. And this is, you know, you, you mentioned this just now. You mentioned it again in the piece. I'm, I'm reiterating it because I experienced this myself throughout the Brexit campaign, throughout the campaigns of 2013, 2014, 2015 in the United Kingdom, whenever there was mass migration to be had. So the, and there were even like open, openly you know in your face sketches and skits about this on british television you know as 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 the as the upper classes wanted their nannies and wanted their au pairs and wanted their cheap cleaning ladies they would obviously flood the the gates open that's not obviously not the only reason there's big business interest here uh, that plays a b- massive part of of the open border stuff but taking immigration as the example the immigrants weren't living in 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 notting hill they didn't they didn't congregate on the corners in 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 Hampstead Heath where all of the kind of uh, intelligentsia and the and, and the uh the twatterati you know they they hang out but it's 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 in the east of England and it's in the midlands and it's and it's in the, the in the north and it's in these old towns that have already been made into husks of their former selves by the by the exportation of the the manufacturing jobs and the labor jobs that were up there. Uh, but then on top of that, I mean, I've gone to many of these places. I went to them to, to, to write my book, No-Go Zones, because a lot of these places now become migrant enclaves, migrant-dominated enclaves. And I think that's really what Enoch Powell was talking about back in 1968 when he used the phrase rivers of blood I don't know how much you know about this, Tom, but he was talking about the the how the migrant would also have to shed blood in order to in order to survive in society because they would be given such a a rough deal. It wasn't about migrants shedding the blood of natives on the streets, and any any person who had read Virgil's Aeneid would 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 get that. But the establishment at the time pilloried powell for for daring to say it and but it's the same thing you talk about in your article is it not yes you know for the working class um these are economic intrusions 
has nothing to do with the race or nationality of someone. But for instance, in the United States, you know, the, the, the great social engineering that came about in the late 60s and early 70s were things like public housing. Okay, you have to decide where to put public housing. And you're not putting it on Park Avenue in New York right, where you're right. destroying the property values you know, of, of the really rich people. You go to the working class communities and you construct the public housing. And these people have the smallest of nest eggs. And they have you know, uh, you know, the, the meagerest of means. And you are harming their property values by putting the public housing there. Then you show up on their front porch when they complain. Right. And they're complaining about public housing. And they're doing it, you know, in, in coarse terms. And, you know, I think the optic that was created in the late 60s and early 70s is look at these people. You know, they're complaining about the blacks moving in. And that's not what, what it was at, at all. It, right. was, it was economic. Busing was the other thing. You know, you have courts uh, who decided that schools should be desegregated. So what we're going to do is we're going to bus children uh, from poor neighborhoods to to African-American schools and African-American children from those schools to the poor neighborhood schools. And that never touched the suburbs. It never touched the rich neighborhoods. And the people, you know, who may have bought their house and, and were living, you know, month to month, making the house payments so they could be near the school that they wanted, their kids were suddenly forced by federal judges to get in buses and go to schools 10 miles away in neighborhoods they didn't know and couldn't get to. And then the news would show up on their front porch when they issued complaints. And they said, look at these people, you know, complaining about, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, African-Americans. And th that's how the that's the card trick, as I, I called it. The great institutions that were responsible for racism never confessed and repented. And somehow they were able to direct the ire to those middle class people. And that's where it continues today. That's why, you know, the middle class rose and voted for Trump. And I think it was, you know, on economic issues. Mm. There's no evidence that anyone uh, or any of Trump's policies are in any way racist or based in white supremacy. Um, you know, just if you advocate the enforcement of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, Ted Kennedy wrote that that law, and it's the most progressive immigration law in the world. Uh, you know, the Vatican doesn't have as progressive an immigration law as that. And if you're simply advocating for its enforcement, you cannot say that that means someone's a racist. Right. Uh, they just want the law to be enforced. And there are economic reasons that they want the law to be enforced. So this is a lie. It's an information op. And, you know, it's something that uh, you and I can try to unwind a little bit by putting out, you know, 2,800 word essays on a Sunday afternoon and have a lot of people read them and, and try to make it as punchy and entertaining as possible so that they, and with, with citations and links, so they can see what really happened here. Well, and it's really important that you mention that uh, because we don't do, we don't publish a lot of articles this length. I've, I think I've actively discouraged it, Tom, whether it's you or other people. But but looking at this, looking at the subject matter at hand and thinking about the way the world is right now, parents are spending a lot more time with their kids. I know a lot of people are hoping that doesn't last much longer and you have many different 
reasons to feel that way i'm i'm somebody who's more in favor of if you can homeschool your kids i, I don't trust anything that's going on uh, we're gonna have a story up on the nationalpulse.com maybe maybe up before uh, this podcast is even up uh, uploaded about victoria newland biden's new state department lead saying she welcomes chinese communist party uh, supports she used the word support supports chinese communist party propaganda in American schools. She says it leads to a greater understanding of one another. But these these are the types of things that kids are learning at schools. And what Thomas has written here are the types of things that are no longer learned at schools. They were they were barely ever um, mentioned in, in schools. And, and Tom, I think you've done the world such a great justice by putting it all here uh, in one article. Let me ask you this before we let you go here. The last question on this. And, and, and then everybody has to go and read the article. It's called The Increasingly Secret History of the Racist Democrats. And everybody has to read it and everybody has to share it. And you print it and you get your kids to read it and you teach them the real history. Tom, let me ask you this. You kind of leave us on a little bit of a, a high note. You're saying that that actually the the way that this has been orchestrated the last several decades, if not longer, is coming to an end? Yeah, I, I say that I think the people that orchestrated it, and I'm, I identify white boomers, um, and they have a lot of self-regard. They, they all think they're Selma marchers, and they weren't. Uh, they were very late to the game, and they had very little to do with it. Uh, and I say they have more power than ever be- before, but less clout. Mm. And the power is, you know, exhibited with that razor wire in Washington. You know, they're going to pretty much do what they want. You know, Merrick Garland, uh, you know, testified before the Senate, and he said that uh, he's going to go after white supremacists, suggesting that that's what the Trump movement is based in. And there's no evidence of it. And he had very little challenge from even those Republican senators on that. But I do believe it's unsustainable. I think like in 1954, uh, right before Brown versus Board of Education, people are starting, you know, to see through it. And the boomer pathos, you know, you've talked about pathos and storytelling, Mm -hmm. the boomer pathos that was so good in the 60s, 70s, 80s, is really not so good now. Uh, You have really old guys, you know, trying to carry this message. You have the young people coming up. I love the the expression, okay, boomer, uh, (laughs) because I think that's what you're you're seeing now. You know, that thing they tried to pull with Bruce Springsteen at the Super Bowl, you know, people are sitting uh, in front of their TV snickering. It wasn't working, and their stuff's not working. So that's the high note. They have more power, but less clout, less influence. Tom, we're so incredibly grateful for your time. You're a busy man, and the fact that you can dedicate in your in your spare time um, to the three thousand words not an easy not an easy thing to research and and write and and tweak. Uh, Thomas is big on tweaks, <laughs> and, and, and and come on here and talk about talk about it with us, Tom. I think you're an example for the rest of your countrymen. Honestly, I do. T- tell our audience where they can follow you because I I I really do want to see you on social media more. Yeah, I don't. Uh... I don't do that much social media, but do follow me at Twitter, at T. Farnan Law, and on Gab, at T. Farnan Law, and then Parler, if that ever comes back, at T. Farnan Law. Um, but uh, I usually ride 
your coattails on Twitter, Raheem, but I didn't have that this time. But somehow it worked. I'm still suspended. Two two days and five hours, I think, remaining. That's if they let me back. Last time they added 20, uh, 48 hours uh, onto the back end of it. So we'll see. Tom, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Raheem. Obviously, the president's focus this week and the coming weeks until it's passed well, on the American so, rescue plan. And I wanted to take the opportunity. What to I say, said was, we're going to go through this Gen Saki thing together, and we are. So, we're going to play it at, I think, 1.75 times speed together. And I'm going to interject when I want. Let's listen. More are behind on their rent or mortgage. Uh, for almost a full year now, new unemployment claims have exceeded the pre-pandemic all-time high, and the economic data shows a K-shaped recovery with millions of workers at risk of being left behind. That's why it's absolutely critical Congress act, and we certainly hope they do that as quickly as possible. One last note uh, today, as many of you know, all of you know, uh, the president will meet with President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, the president of Mexico, building on their uh, their January 22nd conversation. The meeting will reaffirm the enduring partnership between both countries, based on mutual respect and the extraordinary bond of family and friendship. The president will be joined for the meeting by Secretary of State Tony Blinken, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, spending a lot of time here today, clearly and other White House officials to discuss a new phase of the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship with their counterparts. The discussion we expect will focus on migration, recovery from COVID-19, climate change, and I hope security. you can uh, follow uh, along uh, with this. Uh, what's the White House response to Iran's uh, uh, refusal to sit down for negotiations uh, to their program? And, uh, is there a sense of urgency on the part of the White House to go around to the table given the development of progression of this program? So let me jump in here for, uh, as a start. I understand that this is going to be very quick. Some of you don't listen to things on 1.75 times speed. I'm not going to make you sit here for 38 minutes and go through this press conference with me on normal speed. So I'm going to fast forward play this with you. And it's often the case that in the briefing room, especially with the mask mandates now, you can't actually hear the the question very clearly from the reporter on the live stream. <laughs> right? That's what it sounds like. So don't worry if that's what you hear. Don't, don't think, oh, I'm wasting my time. I can't understand what's being said here. Just listen. And when you need to know what's going on, I will tell you what's going on. I will I'll tell you what the journalist is saying, what the questions are. And sometimes Saki actually re- repeats uh, the question. Actually, sometimes repeats the question as her answer. <laughs> well, um, first, let me say we're disappointed uh, in Iran's response. We remain ready to re-engage in meaningful diplomacy to achieve a mutual return to compliance with JCPOA commitments, and we uh, will be consulting at every level with our P5 plus one partners on the best way forward. We do view this, though, as a part of a diplomatic process to determine the way forward, uh, and that's what we'll be engaging for the person on. Another foreign policy, uh, the president has not taken any direct action against the Saudi Crown Prince in response to his involvement uh, in, in, in the murder of General Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, why not, and what message is the president... It's a question about Jamal Khashoggi. Well, let me first say that, um, you know, this was a horrific crime. Uh, the president has been consistent in reiterating that and his belief of that. Uh, the report that was released on Friday through ODNI uh, did not contain new information. It was important to the president that it was released and it abided by our legal obligations. And it wasn't something uh, that was done by the prior administration. We also took a series of strong steps to impose on individuals directly involved in the operation that led to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, including adding uh, senior Saudi intelligence official Ahmed al-Asiri to the list of those facing uh, global, Magnitsky de- de- global Magnitsky designation. I don't know why that's a mouthful. We also sanctioned under the global Magnitsky role global the entire Magnitsky. rapid intervention force, a unit of the Saudi Royal Guard that has engaged and counter dissident operations, including the operation that resulted in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. This is a crucial step because it structurally addresses an unacceptable pattern of targeting, monitoring, harassment, and threats to dissidents and journalists. And we believe, our team, our national security team believes that going after the network responsible for these actions is the best way to prevent a crime like this from ever happening again. That is our objective. So let me jump in here and and explain to you a little bit because you might be thinking to yourself, all right, Raheem, 
We're three minutes into this thing now. I haven't heard anything interesting. What are we doing here? That's by design. Uh, Jen Psaki has very clearly, very, very clearly had questions placed around the room. I'm not saying she's in cahoots with these reporters. I'm saying this is the way it's always been. The press secretary will give a heads up to a reporter um, in advance. It would say, hey, if you want to ask a question about Khashoggi, I may, I may just call on you because we have something to say on that. Hey, if you want to ask a question about Iran, we may have something interesting to say on that. And sure enough, those reporters will therefore, you know, scratch out whatever they already had on their notepad or add this question that the White House would like asked to the top in order to get preference of being asked. Asked to ask the question. So when you hear boring questions at the outset or things that aren't pertaining to either major scandals or topical things or, or, or things that seem kind of in the weeds, that's by design. That's what's going on right here, by the way. Uh, again, uh, you know, I would say we took a number of steps that our team determined were the right steps to uh, prevent this from ever happening again. That is our objective. We also, from day one, even prior to the release of this report, have recalibrated the relationship, have made clear that it is going to be a shift from how it was approached over the last four years. That means counterpart-to-counterpart conversations. That means not holding back and voicing concern and pushing for action as it relates to dissidents or journalists or others being held. And it means making clear that we are not going to support the ongoing uh, war in Yemen. We want to find a conclusion of that war. So our objective is to recalibrate the relationship, prevent this from ever happening again, and find ways, as there are still, to work together with Saudi leaders while still making clear where we feel action is unacceptable. See now, my point being proved. His last question is the question he actually wanted to ask. The others were the questions that she wanted asked. So he clearly wants to ask about Cuomo. So this is the Cuomo question. And then is the president concerned that this could serve as a distraction from uh, Governor Cuomo's handling of the pandemic and should he potentially step aside uh, while this investigation is underway so that there are no distractions handling the pandemic? Well, uh, as uh, I stated yesterday, um, the president's view has been uh, consistent and clear that every woman coming forward should be treated, treated with dignity and respect. Uh, that applies to Charlotte. That applies to Lindsay and any woman uh, coming forward. And since yesterday, of course. By the way, how come that uh, that didn't apply to Tara Reid, the uh, the Biden accuser? Just question. Of course, overnight, um, the attorney general has been made clear that the attorney general, the New York attorney general, will oversee an independent investigation with subpoena power, and the governor's office said he will fully cooperate. Uh, we certainly support that process, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll wait to see that through. Just, uh, go ahead. Just to follow up, you, you reserve the right to sanction the crown prince in the future if deemed necessary, right? Of course, we reserve the right to take any action at a time and manner of our choosing. I will note, Steve, that uh, historically, uh, the United States, through Democratic and Republican presidents, has not typically sanctioned government leaders of uh, countries where we have uh, diplomatic relations. Okay. And a separate question. We saw the statement last night about Alabama and Amazon. Mm -hmm. Is the president endorsing Amazon workers forming a union there? Well, the president, uh, broadly, and I think it was a video, uh, just so, so people know the context of what you're referring to, uh, the president believes that workers should have the right to organize. Uh, that is a fundamental um, uh, value he has and one that he has been consistent on for decades. Uh, we don't comment on specific cases where it is before the NLRB or could be before the NLRB, so we aren't going to weigh in specifically on Amazon. But we, uh, broadly, he believes that workers should have the right to organize, and hence he conveyed that in the video. Planted question. Have you been forceful enough in your sanctions on Myanmar? Because we, we keep seeing these bloody crackdowns. And are you coordinating with allies to look at more action? Uh, we are absolutely. Uh, we put out a statement uh, yesterday from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. So let me just reiterate a couple of the pieces from that, uh, that we remain alarmed. Just FYI, she's never this prepared. So something's changed here where she's got her folder in front of her, all the questions. She even seems to know which questions are coming up next. Something's changed in this process.
by the Burmese security forces violent, uh, violence against peaceful protesters. The killings represent an escalation of the ongoing crackdown on pro-democracy protesters since the February 1st coup. Uh, we are preparing the additional actions to impose further costs on those responsible for this latest outbreak of violence and the recent coup. Uh, and we expect to have more to share on that in the coming days. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. And on, back on Saudi Arabia, during the campaign, obviously, former Vice President Joe Biden was very well aware of the history of the U.S. government in terms of who they sanction and who they have. But yet he said, we're going to make them pay the price and make them the pariah that they are. How does this come anywhere close to his pledge to Americans in November of 2019 at that debate? It's a good question. Well, first, the president has been clear to his team, and he's been clear publicly, that the relationship is not going to look like what it's looked like in the past. And even before the release of the report on Friday, we had taken actions as an administration to make that clear through diplomatic conversations to our partners and allies in the region and through our actions. And that includes uh, a, a change in how we are communicating with the Saudis, counterpart to counterpart, going back to uh, that appropriate line of communication. It includes not holding back and raising concerns about human rights abuses. We did see last month that Saudi Arabia did release two uh, dual national prisoners and women's rights. It's interesting, isn't it? I'll let her it on behind me for a bit but it's interesting the shift in this administration's press briefings versus the last and versus what the media has been saying should be the most important stuff for so very long they're now happy to play the game of the administration it's all foreign policy listen to it it's foreign policy foreign policy bombing stuff and invading places and and diplomacy with the saudis and all of that and there's a you know let's f- remember there is a pandemic going on there are people waiting for those checks and this white house on the monday morning immediately after the president's speech the president donald trump's speech that is where he said we've gone in one month from america first to america last I mean, what a way to prove to people that President Trump is actually correct. Uh, in this case, uh, that he's acting on the advice of his national security team, uh, and he believes this is the right approach uh, for our long-term interests. If I could ask the domestic mm-hmm. one really quickly. You said there are 14 days, obviously very critical mm-hmm. 14 days to getting COVID relief passed. What specifically will he be doing uh, directly with uh, Democratic senators and Republican senators, perhaps? Will he reach out to... Ah, our uh, first question on COVID relief. Ten minutes in. Absolutely. Uh, I think we're going to be evaluating day by day what the needs are. So as you know, he'll be meeting with or via Zoom a number of uh, Democrats, Democratic senators this afternoon. Uh, we reserve time in his schedule to ensure that he can be engaged, roll up his sleeves and be personally involved in making phone calls, having more Zoom meetings, uh, potentially having people here to the Oval Office to get this across the finish line. And I expect him to be very involved personally. On the parliamentarian decision, you said that he respects that decision, but progressives don't understand this. In some respect, they're like, why not fight for this? So why is the White House not more aggressively challenging that and sending the vice president to try and, and potentially overrule that with the vote? Well, uh, the, the decision for a vice, the vice president to uh, vote to overrule or to take a step to overrule is not a simple decision. Uh, it would also require 50 votes. Uh, as you know, it's not a one-step decision. And the president and the vice president both respect uh, the history of the Senate. Uh, they are both formally served in the Senate, and that's not an action we intend to take. But I, the president is committed to... This is about removing the, the Senate parliamentarian because Democrats can't get their uh, their legislation uh, through. It's a very interesting thing because the reporter just said... Just said progressive elements in the party, but I don't think. I mean, Ilan Omar, I think, is the only one out there on that, and I wouldn't really call a hijab-clad woman a progressive. I don't know. That's just me. Well, I think that's mixing a few things um, kind of irresponsibly, if I'm just being totally honest. Um, I would say on the minimum wage, the president included a raise of the minimum wage in his package because he felt strongly that it's long overdue, that men and women working hard, trying to make ends meet, shouldn't be living at the poverty level. That's why he put it in his package. 
there is a process that go, it goes through, a parliamentary process, it, when it's a reconciliation bill, as you know, but for people who haven't been following all the nitty-gritty of this, because it's a budgetary bill. Uh, that's why it went through the process. And, uh, you know, again, I would, I would send you to talk to leaders in Congress to see if they have the 50 votes necessary, but regardless, the president, the vice president, have made the decision they're not going to move forward uh, with that step, but also it's not a simple process. It requires two steps. As it relates to Neera Tandon, she is somebody who has decades of experience. Two steps uh, is, a, is, is a complicated she is, process, uh, apparently. She is to lead the budget uh, team, and uh, we're continuing, of course, to fight for the confirmation of, uh, of every nominee uh, that the president puts forward. We'll see if we have 50 votes. That's part of the journey. That's part of democracy in action. Oh, go ahead. Uh, on, on voting rights, the Supreme Court is set to hear a major voting rights case this week. Mm -hmm. uh, you have, by some estimates, in 43 states, Republican-led states, that are set to at least envision a change to election laws and, and want to make it harder, put, put in place more restrictions on, on voting. Uh, the House is set to vote on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that is running headlong into a Senate filibuster. Does the president support nixing the filibuster as a means of passing voting rights? And if not, how is he going to leverage his political capital to make sure that this democratic priority becomes law? Well, first, uh, the president's committed to protecting the fundamental right to vote and making it easier for all eligible Americans to vote. Uh, his campaign was about fighting for democracy, and we're going to continue to fight for democracy in the White House. Uh, and that's why we need to pass reforms like H.R. 1, uh, the For the People Act, and restore the Voting Rights Act. And he's happy to see the House take up H.R. 1 this week. We're not going to get ahead of the process. The president's view on the filibuster is well known. Uh, he has not changed that point of view. But certainly, uh, any step to protect voting rights, to ensure that it's easier and not harder uh, for people to vote in the country, we feel is a positive step. So you notice now okay. you're starting to get an idea of why I'm doing this. You, we are 13 minutes in. That's that's a decent amount into this thing. We've got about in in real time. It would be 30 minutes left. Uh, in in 1.5, 1.75 time, whatever we're on, it's about 20 minutes left. But we've got that, and we're 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 this far in. We're 10. We're 13 real minutes into this thing, really, and we've had questions about foreign policy. Uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, I think we had one on COVID. We also then had one on Cuomo. But the whole thing so far, and then we just had two questions on process. Process. Parliamentary process. Did reporters in the room ever ask the Trump administration about, about process stories? They didn't. They didn't. Keep listening. Cuomo, then I have a question about sports. Sure. Um, so, Governor Cuomo, you said uh, President Biden supports an independent review of his sexual harassment allegations against him. Um, but one of those aides, 25-year-old Charlotte Benefit, Bennett, rather, detailed specific language and questions that she said the governor asked her about her personal life that made her feel uncomfortable. Another Cuomo and the governor question. himself has not denied asking these personal questions. So my question for you is, in general, when it comes to sexual misconduct, where is the red line for this president and the administration? Is it only at unwanted physical overtures, or is it at unwelcome language between a boss and a subordinate with a power differential? Well, Ashley, as I, as I said yesterday, that story was incredibly uncomfortable to read as a woman. Um, and we certainly believe that every woman coming forward, Charlotte, uh, Lindsay, uh, have, uh, should be treated with respect and dignity and be able to tell their story uh, and treated with respect. Uh, there is a process of reviewing, as you noted, um, uh, an independent investigation. We will leave it to that process through the attorney general uh, to make a determination on the path forward. In general, that, not about this specific case, but can you just explain, I mean, your White House accepted the resignation of someone who used simply language that was inappropriate and abusive. Um, is there a red line when it comes just to language, or is uh, President Biden's red line, does it have to be something? I'm not sure, a red line for whom? I'm not sure what you mean. In what, like, with what outcome? For, for, if the review shows that Governor Cuomo asked her questions, um, that's not, you know, as has also been alleged in other instances, a forceful kiss or an unwelcome physical overture, but just mere questions about someone's personal life um, or sex life or romantic life or anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable, especially in a subordinate um, relationship with someone in power, is that something where someone should have to resign or should there be other consequences? That's what I mean. Look, look, the, the, the language. Um, the Listen to this dance that's going on right here. 
the question is 300 words long and the answers well, there aren't answers here so this is about cuomo and this is about the sexual allegations uh, against governor cuomo and if this were a republican if this was in the trump administration the question would have literally been you know x person has been accused of x action are you going to fire them but you listen to the question even from the reporter and it's like, hey, so like um, there was this girl, right? And, you know, it's very uncomfortable and, you know, in voice it's uncomfortable and there are there are red lines. And, and will the red lines exist? Is the Biden like the red lines? And the, was the red lines with the, with the Biden and the Cuomo and the girl? Remember the girl? And she was just dancing around trying to not ask a direct question this is how they convince themselves that they're still reporters because there's a question mark at the end of their 300 words and somehow they've convinced themselves that that represents a question and it doesn't it represents an excuse an excuse not to press the biden regime on things that are very very serious and we're going to get more questions like that uh, 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 further along in this press conference i really need you to pay attention and listen to this stuff i know not everybody gets a chance to listen to these press briefings every day and i'm not going to do this every day we're not just going to sit here and fisk these press conferences every day but i wanted to bring this to you today so that you can understand exactly what's going on here he um uh you know the president has a bar for what is expected in his administration which you referenced uh treating people with civility uh treating people with respect uh and that's what bar he holds in his administration in terms of the path forward uh and the outcome of the investigation uh we will leave it to the attorney general and others to conclude that and then on schools, first I want to make sure I understand, President Biden's 100-day pledge to reopen schools, is that getting 51% of K-8 schools open five days a week? Am I correct on that? Uh, the majority of schools Listen. open five days a week. That is certainly our objective, and we'd like to meet that within 100 days. And we hope our Secretary of Education is confirmed soon. We'll be overseeing that process moving forward. Really interesting. Okay. Listen. She said the majority of schools opened. Follow-up question's good. Five days a week. Is that every single kid who wants to be in school, that individual kid is going five days a week? Or is that the building open five days a week, but kids perhaps doing a hybrid model half the class on Mondays and Wednesdays, the other half on... We'd like kids to be able to be in school five days a week. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so she gave it away right there. The question, the follow-up question, which was good, credit to that reporter, asked a terrible first question, decent third one. The follow-up question to the second question was... Is this schools open five days a week, as in the building is open and kids can go on like Mondays and Thursdays and then Tuesdays and, you know, Fridays, whatever it is. Is it staggered, in other words, or is this full, everybody's there five days, uh, five days a week? And Jen Psaki's response is a very telling. Jen Psaki's response is, we'd like kids to be able to go to school five days a week. But wait, let me let me get the verbatim here. Of education is confirmed soon. We'll be overseeing that process. Building open five days a week. Here we go. But kids perhaps doing a hybrid model half the class on Mondays and Wednesdays, the other half on. We'd like kids to be able to be in school five days a week. We'd like kids to be able to be in school five days a week. That's that's the money, because that's not we'd like all kids to be able to be in school all five days a week. That's we'd like there to be kids in the schools five days a week. So there's a there's a giveaway right there. It's I I'm I haven't looked yet. I wonder if anybody made that distinction has figured that out because what she's saying is the target that the government is telling the public is not the real target. It's a question of semantics. Be very very cautious with that. Go ahead, Kristen. Thank you, Jen. Um, so when the president of Mexico meets with President Biden a little bit later today, he's expected to ask if President Biden would consider sharing part of the U.S. coronavirus vaccine supply with his country. Is this something that President Biden is considering? No. 
Uh, the president has made clear that he is focused on ensuring that vaccines are accessible to every American. That is our focus. The next step is economic recovery, uh, and that is uh, in ensuring that our neighbors, Mexico and Canada, have similarly managed the pandemic so that we can open borders, open our borders and build back better. But our focus is on his focus. The administration's focus is on ensuring that every American is vaccinated. Uh, and once we accomplish that objective, we're happy to discuss uh, further steps beyond that. One other thing that the president of Mexico is expected to propose is an idea to bring uh, an immigrant labor, labor program to the U.S. that could bring 600 to 800,000 immigrants a year to work legally in the United States. Uh, is that something President Biden would consider? I, I've seen reports of that. I believe that's a step that would require Congress. Um, I'm sure we'll have a readout after uh, the bilateral meeting this afternoon, and they both will be speaking after it as well. Okay, one more question about the, the strike in Syria. Uh, the Democratic Senator, Mark Warner, he said over the weekend that he really wished that the Biden administration had given Congress more of a heads up. He said, I wish the Biden team would have given Congress greater knowledge and greater warning. So given the criticism that you and other administration officials had leveled at the Trump administration uh, when they strike Syria back in 2017, why not go more out of the way to, to loop in Congress? Well, there were notifications made um, to the appropriate um, committee chairs, and uh, there, there has also been an offer of classified briefings to anyone who would like a classified briefing, and we concluded a range of notifications on Friday. Uh, in terms of uh, the strike in 2017, uh, that was a strike of, uh, that was, excuse me, that was, a, that was a, an attack uh, on, uh, on Syrian militant, military installations in response to a chemical weapons attack. This was in response to a threat and attacks that threatened the lives of uh, American men and women serving overseas. They're both different in policy and uh, legal uh, justification. Fascinating, that one. Very interesting, that one. Because firstly, you'll note that the, the question's very easy. It's very easy to handle. If this was, again, if this was the Trump administration, the question wouldn't have been, hey, given that you guys said things about this kind of thing before, don't you think you should blah, 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 blah? Actually, if it was under the Trump administration, that reporter would have had the tweets in her hand and would be reading from them. Now, if you're, if you're a member of this audience that's unaware of what's going on here, I'll fill you in real quick. Just 20 seconds on this. When the strikes happened last week, I was with I was with a couple of national um, national security and foreign policy people actually that evening. When the strikes happened, everyone started going through Jen Psaki and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's old tweets. What what their responses were when Trump did it in 2017. And of course, it was condemnation, and this isn't legal, and this isn't right, and we shouldn't be bombing things. And sure enough, within you know a month, uh, Joe Biden's doing it as well. The answer here is really interesting because she says, "Oh, well, that was because of a chemical weapons attack. This was just because of a threat." Well, hold on a minute. A, a chemical weapons attack is 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 far more a a contra and i'm just holding them to their own words here and their own standards it's far more of a contravention towards the geneva convention it constitutes a war crime a, a, a chemical attack surely is a greater moral imperative than a threat is i'm just holding them to their own standards here that makes sense to me one more question from uh, former President Trump over the weekend speaking at CPAC. I heard that. <laughs> he, heard he, <laughs> he said President huh. Joe Biden sold out America's children to the teachers union. How does the White House respond to that? Uh, I think we're going to uh, uh, spend more of our time focused on communicating about our agenda for the American people than responding to uh, criticism from uh, the former president. See, that's a failed. See, that's how you know that Saki is operating with a 90 IQ. And I'm not even kidding. That's how you know. If you're on that podium and you're in that position and you get a chance to dunk on your predecessor, you take that chance. He, She called him the former president. She could have said, we won the election. She could have said, we don't listen to speeches from people who have just lost elections. There was all manner of ways 
from a PR and communications perspective to dunk on that. But remember, her attempt to dunk was when the question first came in and she goes, <laughs> she's asked, hey, so President Trump was speaking this week and she goes, I heard that. I heard he spoke. Just rubbish. Uh, go ahead. Um, to go back to uh, Saudi in the conference and the quote that Jeff brought up from then candidate Joe Biden in 2019, you mentioned uh, holding countries accountable. You mentioned today acting in the national interest. But he said in 2019, we're going to make them pay the price, Saudi leaders. How is the administration making the conference pay a price? And are you saying that the national interest and holding them accountable can't square with paying a price? No, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that. I was outlining a number of the steps that were announced on Friday that were taken, that specifically addressed, uh, sanctioned the deputy head of intelligence, that specifically uh, sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act the entire rapid intervention force, which is a force that is close to um, the uh, the crown prince, uh, and I was referring to specifically our uh, goal of recalibrating the entire relationship, which is something that we uh, started to do from day one of the administration. We did not re wait for the release of the report, but I was also noting that this is a country where we have diplomatic relations. We are going to hold them accountable. We are going to take steps. We are not going to hold back on making clear where actions are unacceptable, where there needs to be a change and reforms put in place, while also uh, recognizing that there are areas we need to continue to work together on because they're in the interest of the United States and our own security. And you mentioned the historically not sanctioning leaders of foreign governments that we have diplomatic relations with. Mm -hmm. You said it then. You said it yesterday. Is it the policy, though, of the Biden administration to not sanction a foreign leader if there are diplomatic relations? More than just precedent, but actual policy. Uh, it, it's considerations. Uh, considerations are done on a case-by-case -case basis, but I think that's an important uh, precedent uh, because obviously taking that step uh, is something that there is not a great deal of historic precedent for. And that was why I noted it. The intelligence community's conclusion at the conference approved the murder operation, uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. If that's not something that would change the precedent, what would? Again, uh, we took a number of steps uh, that were. I mean, I uh, just can't believe that we've had. To have the intended I think something like ten to twelve again, questions now on Jamal Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia, and this really tells you something. At, at some point, maybe even this week, we'll have some guests on to talk more about this Khashoggi stuff and what a what an absolute farce these claims are. But it sort of tells you how captured, how captured the media is by Muslim Brotherhood elements been in the past and that we are going to be uh of course hold the option of holding uh of holding um uh, uh you know to physically captured of course uh to uh to, I mean, to rhetorically take, uh, mentally morally and, captured and make progress moving forward go ahead in the back thank you i've got a couple questions just like my front row colleagues sure um given the white house promised to release visitor logs why hasn't the administration divulged to the president is being with virtually i mean we're in the middle of a pandemic isn't that kind of transparency really important and also wouldn't it be really easy to do he, he's really oh now now we're getting into it. Now we're getting into things that I'm really interested in. The visitor logs. The White House visitor logs that are not publicly available. The visitor logs aren't publicly available. There's no petitions on the White House website anymore. They cancelled that. Day one, the Biden regime got rid of it. There's no uh, uh, communications contact system now like there was under previous administrations. All of them that have had the internet. Um, you, of course, you're missing the visitor logs. And um, he hasn't held a press conference. Joanon.com. Okay, go to joanon.com. If you want to see how long it's been, I built a little web page. Took me five minutes, built a little web page to show the world how long it's been since a Joe Biden solo presser, unaccompanied, as long as he's been in office. And guess what? It's every single day that he's been in office. He has not had an unaccompanied press conference. So now the press is starting to listen to me, and we're starting to get questions about transparency and the visitor logs. Important. But you'll hear what happens next. Meeting with members of the Senate virtually today. There, I've released it for you. What else would you like to know? Names? Oh, I think we did release the names. If we haven't, we certainly have every intention of doing that this afternoon. Very good. Um, 
Very good. Just going to leave that there for real? <laughs> like, hey, you haven't released the White House visitor logs. What do you want to know? Who's he talking to? Senators. Which senators? We'll tell you. Very good. Not very good at all. In fact, awful. What about the visitor logs from yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and the day before? I could do this 40 times. What about those? And what about every other bit of transparency? They don't release, for instance... Uh, Harris or Biden's public schedules. They just do not release those in advance. It's a, it's bizarre. It doesn't happen. Y- you have a regime who was, you know, I'm going to use the, the, the bunny ears here, elected, right? Elected, claiming to be the most transparent. We're going to be the most transparent. We're going to do everything. The other guys were really bad. They never told you nothing. You know, that wasn't normal. We're a return to normal. And they're doing everything, everything in an abnormal fashion. Everything. And this, this makes me so mad. I can feel my blood pressure going up. 55 executive orders in in the first couple of weeks. Zero transparency, zero public schedules, zero visitor logs. And the reporter's response is very good. It's not very good. It's very, very bad. Oh, now, of course, of course, now this thing's going to give me terrible, terrible audio quality because I've shouted into it. Now the system's mad at me. There we go. Uh, I'm wondering, is the president looking at uh, the proposal that was released by House Appropriations Chair Rosa uh, Delora when it comes to bringing earmarks back? Is that something that I know that he's a legislator himself, but is that something that he's interested in? Maybe that could hurry along some of the agenda or does he not have an opinion on earmarks? I have not discussed that with our legislative team. Obviously, as you noted, he was in the Senate for 36 years. Uh, we are Our focus right now is on the American Rescue Plan. Uh, you're familiar with all the components of that bill because we talk about it constantly from here. Uh, but I don't have any uh, new position or a position on that particular piece of legislation. I will check and see if, if there's anything more we would like to convey. Go ahead. Senator, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, Senator Warren proposed a wealth tax on households that are worth at least $50 million, saying, quote, this is money that should be invested in child care and early education, infrastructure, all of which are priorities of President Biden and Democrats in Congress. Does this president have any appetite for wealth tax? Well, the president strongly believes that the ultra-wealthy corporations need to finally start paying their fair share and that our economy and tax system need to reward work, not wealth. That's why he proposed making sure the very uh, richest Americans pay the same rate on the income from their wealth that a worker pays, as well as closing loopholes that allow them to entirely escape tax. Obviously, our focus is on the American Rescue Plan. Addressing uh, the inequities in the tax code is something he talked about as part of his Build Back Better agenda and is something he remains committed to. He has a lot of respect for Senator Warren and is aligned on the goal of ensuring the ultra-wealthy and big corporations finally pay their fair share. He's laid out a lot of ideas, and when we get to that point in our agenda, he'll look forward to working with her and others in Congress. Go ahead. Thank you, very much. So yesterday, former President Trump suggested he might run again in, um, he'll be back in 2024. You said the White House not pay attention to, to President Trump, former President Trump, but how do you think foreign leaders are looking at this? Because this is one of the reasons foreign allies are still, uh, still have doubts and many, uh, if they can trust the U.S. again. So how do you also think President Biden can convince global uh, allies that they can trust the United States in reclaim U.S. leadership? Okay, we're going to go and listen to that one again because this is the reporter who I was telling you about earlier. Not actually a reporter. Very clearly not a reporter. Okay? This is a this is an activist who is asking a question. It sounds like she's from Brazil or something. We find that out later. I don't know who she is, and I'll I'll find that out later too. Don't worry, I go through all of your details, people. We'll find it out. But this stood out to me as a particularly heinous question. I don't know if you caught it the first time there. So we're gonna play it again actually even going to drop it down to normal speed for you here this is an appalling appalling excuse for journalism in congress go ahead thank you jen very much so yesterday former president trump suggested he might run again in um he'll be back in 2024 you said the white house is not paying attention to to president trump former president trump but how do you think foreign leaders are looking 
at this because this is one of the reasons foreign allies are still uh, still have doubts and many um, if they can trust the U.S. again. So how do you also think President Biden can convince global uh, allies that they can trust the United States and reclaim U.S. leadership? All right. So again, remember, this is a reporter, supposedly speaking. And the question from the reporter is, hey, the world wouldn't like it if Trump comes back and therefore uh, foreign leaders are skeptical of re-engaging with the United States because they don't know if the United States is trustworthy if Trump comes back in four years. Is that, I mean, ask yourself, is that really the question a reporter would ask? You know, if you're trying, if you're trying to be uh, a, a neutral reporter in all of this, you your question would be something along the lines of, hey, look, Trump says he's coming back in 2024. Uh, I, I have spoken to ex-world leader, and you're supposed to either name him, or if you really have to go through, ex-leader in ex-region, who says that, you know, he's not sure about the U.S., uh, committing to the same things uh, under a potential next Trump presidency as you know they enter into under a Biden regime, and the answer to that question is simple. Hey, you know, administrations change, policies change, but this reporter goes out of her way to talk about the confidence, the level of confidence and trust, and all of this kind of stuff. I don't need to play again for you, I'm sure, but it's really interesting to watch this clip to watch it in video format i realize it's not much help talking to you right now but i will i will describe the scene for you throughout this one minute long question again 300 word question saki is staring dead down the eyes of this reporter and smiling in the creepiest way and then her eyes go up and her mouth curls up whenever certain keywords are hit and that's what tells me that saki knows what this question is she's even helped uh, formulate this question perhaps uh, put it in the hands of the reporter said hey we want a question about this it would be great if you mentioned confidence or trust or whatever and every time there's a keyword it's it's this instinctive response by saki she's smiling because she's thinking oh i can tell the boss i got her to use this word i can tell the boss i can you know how it is you've worked with people like that where they're just kind of total frauds and they just it's it's this presenteeism culture with with it's it's the i i, I know i'm gonna lose some of the audience here but it's it's gareth from the office right and i know your office is different you have the american office which by the way was a spin-off of the british office for those that don't know i've heard some people who think it's the other way around but the british office and there's that kind of and, and gareth's title is uh assistant to the regional manager and he calls himself assistant regional manager that's jen saki right jen saki is the assistant to the regional manager but she scratches off to the on her business cards and she's smiling along because she can't wait to go back and tell her bosses her tell biden or whoever's awake in the white house hey did you hear that did you hear what i got her to ask crazy crazy well the president president biden uh just decisively beat uh, donald trump a few months ago that's why we're all here having so much fun together in here uh and actually that's why you're there that's not why everyone else is there everyone else would be there anyway never mind 90 IQ. Uh, but his focus, and I think one of the ways that he convinces foreign allies and partners that America's back and we, we want to seat at the table, is by keeping his focus on his commitments he made on the campaign trail, which is building the economy back better, bringing an end to the pandemic, rebuilding our relationships around the world, and not focusing time and energy and effort on a political campaign. There's plenty of time for that, but his focus is on uh, his objectives of uh, getting the pandemic under control, working with our partners around the world to do that as well. Do you think taking into consideration that foreign allies are worried about the return of Donald Trump? 
I'm not a spokesperson for our foreign partners, so you'd have to ask them and see what they have to say. I have one more question about sure, Brazil. Ahead. So sure. the WHO said that it is a tragedy happening in Brazil right now because of the pandemic. Uh, what is the White House evaluation of uh, the situation in Brazil and how Brazil is responding to this crisis? Well, first, uh, let me note that on just about a month ago, uh, the United States, through the US, uh, through USAID, announced it has delivered an uh, $1.5 million for emergency COVID-19 response in Brazil. Um, we did that, of course, because we want to be a collaborative and cooperative partner in addressing the pandemic. Uh, our focus is on uh, here uh, is on getting uh, the American people vaccinated. That needs to be our focus now. But of course, we believe that uh, the more people in our global community who are vaccinated, the safer we all are. It's just what our current focus is uh, at this point in time. Is it in conversation with the Brazilian government about uh, the situation there? Do you think also there is a tragedy going on in Brazil right now? Happening in Brazil? Certainly, the loss of life, the number of people who have been uh, impacted in Brazil and many places in the world, including the United States, is, is an incredible tragedy. Uh, but in terms of specific conversations, I'd refer to the State Department. They would have more specifics and more updated conversations to read after you. Go ahead. Just one more question about uh, South America. There was uh, some hope in South America that President Biden would be an ally because he was uh, he has experience leading uh, issues in the region during the Obama administration. Uh, but uh, so far, in more than a month, uh, President Biden has not spoken with any leader in South America. So I wonder what would be his uh, priority in the region and also who might be his best partner in the region. Who would be the first one to call? We'll see. I, I promise you that uh, the president would love to spend even more time calling uh, foreign leaders. And there's just a lot, of course, on his schedule. I expect he will do many more foreign leader calls uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and certainly would uh, have discussions with many leaders in South America, but I don't have any prediction for you about who or when. Go ahead. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. So that's the question she actually wanted to ask. She wanted to ask how come Biden hasn't called anybody uh, in South America yet? And she got told, you can only ask that question or I'm only going to answer that question. We're only going to take that question. I'm gonna, only going to call on you if you give me this question about uh, about Trump and, and confidence and trust and blah, blah, blah um first i guarantee you that's how it works i guarantee you um that, that that's how that's going down and here's what's really interesting about that answer is that biden she says oh I, biden wishes he could spend more time on the phone with world leaders hang on if you're a world leader and and you know this guy hasn't called an entire continent yet none of the countries on the entire continent and then you see all these pictures and puff pieces coming out about, you know, Biden takes a snow day. There was two of those, right? Two weeks ago. Biden takes a snow day. Or all these pictures of Biden on the front lawn playing with his dogs. Or all these articles. Have you seen these of him? You know, he spends a lot of his days building fires in the Oval Office. He loves to build that fireplace. You're a, you're a South American world leader. And Jen Psaki's like, yeah, we, we really wish we had more time. Yeah, you're taking your dogs out, building fires, getting a getting a nap in. This is outrageous. This would be the cause of major scandal if it was a Republican. Remember, they told us that all Donald Trump does all day is watch television. All Joe Biden does is nap in front of the fireplace with his with his dogs by his side. And Jen Psaki can actually get up there with as straight a face as you can call that and say, oh, yeah, no, he really wishes. God, if only we had the time. Chance would be a fine thing. Have acknowledged that uh, you know people were having a lot of frustration getting vaccine appointments, a lot of problems with the state portals. Is there any discussion at this point, given those problems, with setting up some sort of nationwide portal for people to access those vaccine appointments? Well, there, there was an announcement we made last week about uh, Vaccine Finder, and it's just available, of course, in about a half a dozen states at this point in time. But what we're working to do is take a number of steps to ensure people have access to more easily figure out when they can get a vaccine when they're eligible. In part because, as you know, everybody doesn't have access to the internet. Everybody doesn't know how to figure that out online. Uh, so certainly that's one tool in a pilot stage at this point in time. Certainly could be expanded. But we're also looking for uh, to add additional uh, steps, call centers, uh, you know, proactive outreach, other ways to reach people who are having trouble figuring out how to gain access to a vaccine and when they'll be eligible. Okay, 
one more question, if you don't mind. Um, Senators Wyden and Sanders dropped their plan today um, for taxing companies that did not uh, pay a higher minimum wage. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what is the plan C at this point for getting some sort of minimum wage increase through Congress in the next several months? Well, it is uh, an issue that the president remains committed to. He wants the minimum wage to be raised. Uh, that's why he put it in his package, and he uh, is going to be in conversations. And we will be at a number of levels uh, with uh, members of Congress, with their staffs, about the best vehicle moving forward. Uh, but we don't have a clear uh, answer on what that looks like at this point. It just remains a commitment and something he will uh, use his um, uh, political capital to get done. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, the White House has President standing up here. Um, the office has released the senators who will be meeting virtually with the president this afternoon. There are nine senators. Okay. Um, would you consider opening the top of that up so we can hear from the president directly on this 14-day critical uh, push? And if not, why is that meeting not open? Well, the a, question is, will Joe Biden allow reporters to listen into his call with senators later today? Let's hear the answer. He'll call. I'm happy to check with our team and see. Um, he doesn't. He has spoken about his commitment to getting the American Rescue Plan passed and the reasons why uh, nearly on a daily basis. So I don't think you've had a shortage of that. He'll also be speaking after the bilateral meeting with Mexico. But I'll check and see if there's more that can be done. In other words, she'll circle back. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, um, Donald Trump said everybody should get their COVID-19 shots. Is that something you would welcome his intervention? And given that Republicans as a group seem rather more reluctant to get the, the coronavirus vaccination, is there more you could be doing with Republican leaders to, to bring on that group? Uh, well, it's a good question. I mean, our objective, of course, is to ensure um, as many Americans as possible uh, are vaccinated as quickly as possible. And we will have enough vaccines to vaccinate, uh, uh, ensure every American has a vaccine by the end of July, if not sooner, likely sooner. Uh, so our, at a certain point we're going to reach, uh, we will have more vaccines than there are people who want to take them. That doesn't seem like how, where we're going to be at this point, but we will reach that point in time. And we certainly welcome the encouragement from anyone to take a vaccine. What a question. Uh, Republicans don't like taking vaccines. Ridiculous. It seems to emerge from her lawyer in court here, which is actually employed by the State Department or the U.S. intelligence services. I wonder if you can clarify. So I think that, I mean that's most of it. That's most of it. That's interesting. I don't recall there being another interesting question. Well, Let's just skip forward a little FDA, bit here uh, on kind of how these vaccines should be distributed and where. I will say that the advice and guidance we've been uh, we've we've received from our health and medical team is that uh, every American should take whatever vaccine is available when it's their turn. And uh, in terms of distribution of those vaccines, generally. Yeah, that's about it now. And and you see. It's a great question. It certainly is something on his mind and a priority for him, uh, given his long history, obviously, as former chairman of the Judiciary Committee. I don't have an update for you on the timing, but uh, it's, it's something that he is focused on personally. Jeff, can I just ask, uh, oh, in these conversations with foreign leaders, um, phone calls and all meetings, uh, is President Biden discussing at all the threat of the white, white supremacy? Uh, oh. Domestic violent extremism? This is the one. Uh, certainly, it's a, it's a... This is the one. Okay, this is the one I was talking to you about earlier when Tom Farnham was on the line with us. This goes. I think it goes back to the same reporter as previously, that I think may be Brazilian. Um... She asked the question. I'm going to play it in normal speed here so we can hear it properly. Let's just listen. Listen. At all the track of the white on our meetings. Uh, is President Biden discussing at all the track of the white, uh, white supremacy? Uh, domestic violent extremism? Uh, certainly. It's, uh, it's a. US, but, you know, uh, around the world? Yeah. You're discussing here in the U.S. and around the world. Well, there's an ongoing review, as you know, and we're allowing that policy process to see itself through. He does receive regular updates from his Homeland Security team and others on incidents happening around the world. Uh, whether it comes up in meetings, uh, I don't think I have anything more specifically to read out for you other than to convey that it is uh, a priority for him on the national security uh, front in addressing that. That's why he asked his team to uh, conduct a full review and why we'll look at that before we put new policies in place. Does he believe white supremacy is a threat to the national security and maybe further uh, trans, a trans, uh, transnational threat? Uh, he certainly wouldn't have asked the national security team to conduct a full review of domestic violent extremism, including, of course, um, activities of white supremacists if he did not think it was a threat. Thank you, everyone. 
Thank you, Jen Saki, for giving me a great episode today. You, okay, so that last question, again, obviously planted, because the reporter couldn't even read the word transnational off the piece of paper in front of her, didn't know what that word was, didn't know how to pronounce it. Not so, not, not, not her fault, not, um, you know, it, she's given a word she didn't know, that's okay, that that, that happens. But the, the fact is that she's given a word, right? Somebody has given her that question to ask. And you could see on Jen Saki's face when she got that, that word, when she flubbed that word, that Jen Saki was like, oh boy, you know, now it looks like you're reading something off a piece of paper that I may have dictated to you earlier on and of course they want to use that phrase white supremacy and she just wants to get the phrase white supremacy again on the record and hope somebody writes about it and oh you know CPAC the stage was in the shape of the odal ruin and it's all white supremacy and we take it very seriously and we're doing investigations and blah 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 but and but that's you know that's obviously planted it's obviously there the question will be over the next couple of weeks maybe months is what reporter which reporter in the White House press briefing room will be brave enough to come out and admit to these things, that this is what's going on, that there is this this quid pro quo over questions and and how the structure of the press briefing works. Because look, and, and if you think I'm being a conspiracy theorist about this, which I'm sure a lot of uh, reporters who listen to this will maybe think, oh, we don't do that, we never do that. Well, firstly, I know you do it because I've done it with you, okay? I've been a press officer. I know what it's like to say to somebody, hey, we'll let you ask your question about this, but first, you know, it'd be really good if you asked a question about this other thing. That's how it works. If you don't think that's how it works, you're either being totally disingenuous with yourself or you're incredibly naive or maybe you're out of the loop one of those three things, right? But I know that the reporters, some reporters will be listening to this and going, oh, you know, uh, Raheem's just got his tinfoil hat on here. That's not what's taking place in the in the press briefing room. Okay, look, if I had told you in advance of January the 20th that the Biden regime would not publish visitor logs, you would have said BS, the left are always more transparent. Democrats are totally transparent. That's what I'm saying. You would have been, if you're a reporter, that's what you would have said. Most reporters, 96%, 97% of reporters are leftists, and they will go to bat for the Democratic Party and the left movement. Uh, if I told you they wouldn't publish, uh, that Biden wouldn't have held a press conference by now, you would have told me BS, that would have happened by now. If you had told me that, uh, you know, they would have, we'd have the, the, the schedule of events out every day for the president and the vice president, um, that wouldn't have happened you would have said bs and so now all i'm alleging is that they're taking their their lack of transparency and indeed the the nefariousness around the the information and owning information and information warfare to the next level that's all i'm saying i'm just saying it's one step up it's not 10 steps up it's just not it's that's one step up from the last rung of the ladder which is we're just not going to tell you stuff so it goes from we're not going to tell you stuff to we are also going to control what we're asked in order that we only release certain stuff that we do want to tell you that's the way it works that is just the way it works ladies and gentlemen i'm sorry if you don't believe me much time left but i do want to ask you about january the 6th um it's been reported that when that was unfolding you were watching and actually you you liked what you were seeing because you felt that it was your people fighting for you um do you get how bad it was and is there anything looking back on it now that you would have done differently that day Well, that's incorrect reporting. First of all, I wasn't watching TV. I turned it on later on when I heard about it. 
and did a lot of moves. You know, we said to the uh, Department of Defense, the top person, uh, days before we had the rally, because that rally was massive. I mean, you know, you have, they don't, the press doesn't like to talk about, but the real number was much, much bigger in terms of the people that were uh, at the location. It went all the way back practically mm-hmm. to the Washington Monument. It was tremendous numbers of people. Not the Capitol, I'm talking about the rally itself, and it was a love yeah. fest. It was a beautiful thing. No, but we actually, re- I requested, I said, look, this rally is going to be bigger than anyone thinks, because everybody I see said, oh, we're going to be at the rally, we're going to be at the rally. And it had a, it was, I think, the largest crowd that I've ever spoken before. And I've spoken very big crowds, hundreds of thousands of people and more than that, but hundreds of thousands of people. And I said that I think you should have 10,000. I think I gave the number. I definitely gave the number of 10,000 uh, National Guardsmen. I think you should have 10,000 of the National Guard ready. Uh, they took that number. From what I understand, they gave it to the people at the Capitol, which is controlled by Pelosi, and I heard they rejected it because they didn't think it looked good. So, you know, that was a big mistake. Do you, I just want to know how you feel wow. about it. Wow, 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 wow. Hang on a second. Hang on just a second. This is an interview with President Trump last night on The Next Revolution with Steve Hilton. Steve Hilton, who made David Cameron run this floppy liberal Democrat alliance coalition government in the UK in 2010. These are the people that didn't want Brexit to happen, remember? We'll talk about Steve Hilton another time. In fact, maybe we'll get Steve Hilton on here if he wants to have a chat. But Steve Hilton gets to interview Donald Trump. Yes, I am slightly salty about that, actually. Because you have you have somebody who is outwardly a globalist, is married to one of the super lobbyists in the world. He gets to have a show on Fox called The Next Revolution and interview Donald Trump. I'm sitting here in my basement being the guy that supported this movement in 2015. Take a breath, Raheem. Relax. Calm down. It'll all happen. Anyway, back to the point. Can you tell what I'm sensitive about? Back to the point. Donald Trump is talking about January the 6th. And he says, we offered 10,000, we offered 10,000 National Guard troops. And it was Pelosi and the Capitol officials who refused. Now, for you paying hyper, hyper close attention at home, you will know that that was first reported in Vanity Fair just a couple of days after January the 6th. And indeed, I've mentioned it a few times on this show. I've mentioned it on the National Pulse website. But for the vast, I guarantee you, majority of Americans have absolutely no idea it happened. And I'm sad that the president glossed over it there. I mean, he just kind of said it as a matter of fact, like he, like he knows that everybody knows this. I know, that, uh, I know that President Trump has read reporting in the National Pulse. I know the timeline of events as well was something that the, uh, the president and his team found very helpful that, that, uh, that I put together. And I'm, I'm glad when anybody um, appreciates our reporting and our investigative work. Maybe that's why he thinks people know it. But I guarantee you, Mr. President, unfortunately, 350 million people aren't reading the National Post. Not yet, anyway. And so he glosses over it there. But that's a major thing, especially to to announce on Fox and for whatever we think about Fox, ladies and gentlemen. You know, the very same thing about Drudge. Sadly, people still consume it. And people will have heard that for the first time yesterday. Going, hold on a minute, what? 
The president authorized 10,000 National Guard troops and Nancy Pelosi rebuffed it or the powers that answered to Nancy Pelosi rebuffed it? That's a major, major development. And I wish conservative reporters knew the following mantra. It's not a scoop unless you treat it like a scoop. Right? You could have a three-month-old piece of information, which basically this is. It's six weeks old. Piece of information. But that hasn't been said in a particular way and in a certain venue. And that's a big deal. It's a big development. It's a big story. We have, we have got it up. We will have it up uh, uh, every single day, quite frankly, on the nationalpulse.com. We actually have a story up about this clip in particular. But I cannot believe that people on the right are not seizing on these bits of information. You know, it's a very busy talking, responding to the left about odal runes. They draw us onto their turf. This is what they do. They draw us onto their turf, and then they keep us there. You are going to get tired of me talking about this, but I do not care. Until we start going on the offensive, we will always lose. Always. Every single time. Well, I think we've spent a lot of time together today. So I'm going to clock off for now. I'll, 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 I'll get back to the CPAC stuff and the president's speech tomorrow. That's kind of one of the things, right? I didn't even feel like it was necessary to talk about today, which is one of the things that I, I regret about it. And I'm not saying it was a bad speech. Of course, it wasn't a bad speech. But you keep the world waiting for so long to hear from you, President Trump and... I wanted a 10 out of 10. I really did. A 9.5 would have done. I would have taken a 9.2. We got a 7.5 at best yesterday for the CPAC. I know some of you disagree. We can disagree. That's okay. You might have liked it. I, I don't think it moved the ball forward, but that's okay. Hey, if you want to support our work, head on over to the nationalpulse.com forward slash support. We need each and every single one of you. I really mean it. We really do. I'm still two days away off a Twitter suspension. You wouldn't believe the impact it's having on the site and on us, on our ability to get news out. They know what they're doing. So I need you, please, the nationalpulse.com forward slash support. Alternatively, go to fundrealnews.com, fundrealnews.com. And I will see you tomorrow. <laughs>